It's been a long road, but we're finally at the end of this series. I want to tell you that there's no series that we do in Exodus that can be even done at the level that we do it in unless there's a lot of people who participate in what's going on. And I thought at the end of this series, especially this one, where we've read over 10 books at this point to present the material, that I think it needs to be stated that there are a couple people in this room that really helped all the way through. Uh, one of them is Morgan, who put together verses from throughout Scripture that we use at different points. Another one is Jeremy, who together with Philip has been wrestling with me offline as we go through different questions. And last Saturday, we actually met and sat down and wrestled even further with some of the questions you've asked. And I've got to tell you that without the help of these people, I don't think that we could do a series like this because they keep it real and they keep it honest. You know that the model we use in Exodus is that anyone is allowed to interrupt at any point and ask questions because we believe the Holy Spirit speaks through every single person, but that's not just limited in this room. So all of you have contributed that way in the questions that you wrote, but Philip, who is a prolific question writer, uh, has been writing questions throughout the series, and I can't tell you how important that is for us, because as I'm standing and reading and presenting, and then to listen to the questions that are still coming back to know what we have communicated and what we haven't, that's very important. So everyone in here with your questions contributes, but those people in particular have really been helpful. So can I ask you to do something a little bit weird? Can we clap for them? You know, we love to clap in church, Liz. It really does help, and... You have no idea how much this is going to impact people. Everything that we do and say and struggle with in here is for the benefit of not only us, but for other people. Here's where we've been. In the first five weeks, we walked through a lot of different pieces of the puzzle of suffering. Then we started to kind of sequence our observations together, and then we started dealing with your questions that were left over. Tonight, what I hope to do is do two things. Wrap up your questions and then wrap up the series. You can feel free to jump in any time if you want further clarification, but I'm going to try to move through these kind of quickly. Here are some of the questions that have been left over that seems like no matter how many times we've come at them, we haven't quite hit them. The first one, should we simply accept that God allows suffering because all of us have sinned? Isn't that just the easiest answer? Wouldn't that just shortcut our whole series and all the things that we've talked about? Can we just do that? And I, my answer to that question that was asked on the card, I'd say maybe. Here's why. I think it depends on how the question is asked. Should we accept that God allows suffering because we've sinned? Well, that seems to presume that the suffering that we're going through is because of sin. I don't think we can make that assumption every time. That's just one of the reasons we said that suffering comes. But if the intent of the question is to say, don't we all just deserve the suffering that's been brought into the world because of our sin? Then the answer would be, yeah, we do deserve it. But I don't know that we could just accept it because we don't know if that's the purpose. Second is, you're going to see me say later, there's a difference between accepting what God has allowed or done and just laying down. If we see evil in the world, I think we have some sort of a duty to fight against it. I don't think we should say, well, God allowed it, let's just do nothing. So that's another word that I see in accept that I want to be careful of. So it's just the way the question's worded, trying to interpret it. That's my answer to that question. Do we have the right to complain about suffering? Well, this is another one of those questions that was hard to answer because it depends on what you think by what you mean by right. Like, do we have a place that we should deserve a life free of suffering? Absolutely not. 
But also in Scripture, don't we see that constantly people are complaining? Or at least bringing their complaints to the Lord? That sounds more spiritual, right? Not just grumbling, but they're bringing their complaints to the Lord. I mean, the Psalms are filled with people who are complaining or bringing their complaints. The prophets also bring their complaints and seek justice and ask for justice. So, yes, I think we're allowed to do that. I mean, we see it in Scripture all the time. He even interacts with us in those places. But I don't know that we have the right to do it. Phil? Then at what point would it, I know it's probably difficult to say because it's probably a line that changes based on context, yada, yada, but like, what, when would it not be okay? Like, when would God not accept that? When does that just become, like, whining? Or like, I don't know. Like... The word you're looking for is grumbling. Like, that's the word that's used in Scripture, where at some point, when you basically... Stop dealing with God as God, but really want to turn your back on him and complain about everything that he's done, which is the one instance we see is when the Israelites repeatedly would turn their back on God and go, you know what, it'd be better if we had just been back as being slaves than to go through this. And they kept doing that over and over, and God kind of drew the line at some point and said, you know what, that's actually grumbling. You're getting to the point where you're questioning my lordship. Like It's different than to bring your complaints to the Lord like the prophets do. Or even as David does, if you see the structure of the Psalms, he complains about something he sees or he's scared about something that's going on in his life or he's in anguish. But there's always seems to be like this other bounce where he affirms the Lord. And he affirms that he is the one that deals all these things. So I think that's probably a healthy bounce for us to follow. It's probably why we have the Psalms preserved so we can follow that bounce. Okay? All right, another question. We all understand the idea of good versus evil, the card said. Should this idea be changed to good through evil? In part. I'm kind of tentative on some of these answers tonight. Here's why. Yes, God can and does bring good through evil. Romans 8.28, we've seen that. We've been talking about it for two weeks. Yes, he can do that. Yes, he does do that. But it can't replace the idea that there actually is good versus evil. Now, I've said that evil isn't a thing, but we rebel against God. Angels rebelled against God. That means that they are adverse to God. In fact, we hear in Scripture, we know in Scripture that it says that we're in rebellion, that we've become the enemies unless we were reconciled to God. So there is a concept where, yes, we are adversarial to God when we are in rebellion to him until we are reconciled. So there is a concept of good versus evil, but... I like the sentiment of the question. That a lot of times we think of them as two opposing forces, like God can't do anything, there's just evil and he's just gonna, he's stuck. But that God is sovereign, he's more powerful than that. He actually can bring good through evil. In fact, that's the great Augustinian tradition, where Augustine basically said that God chose to show his power, not by just defeating evil, but by first bringing good through it and then defeating it. And that concept has stayed with us for a long time. Some people wrestle with that and they don't like it. But that concept has been around for a long time in our church traditions. been saying it's right just because we've had it for a long time, but it's influenced a lot of our thinking. And of course, we see it scripturally in Romans 8. That's where we've been. Why doesn't God do more to stop suffering? We've come back over and over to this concept. Why doesn't he do more to stop suffering? I mean, all the things aside, all the explanations aside that we came up with, couldn't he just do a little bit more? And here's what we said. We first, we don't know how much he's already stopped. None of us can know how much he's already preventing right now. 
that maybe but for his hand, the whole place would just blow up. I, we have no idea. We've also said that he, if he stopped some suffering, I mean, where's the end? If one person dies in a tsunami, isn't that still suffering? What if one person injured their finger in a tsunami? What if one person tripped over something? I mean, at what point would God have to go to stop suffering? And as I have argued, and C.S. Lewis argued before me, to eliminate suffering is to really eliminate sin and its consequences entirely. He argues, actually, it's to eliminate life on this planet. Okay, we've covered this enough times, but Jill actually asked a very important question that when I was going back to edit talks, I almost didn't hear it the first time, and this was the question. Why doesn't God do more to punish evil? I think the question was stated this way. If we're always hearing that God can't go all the way in preventing suffering, why can't he go all the way in punishing evil? Why can't he just do that at least? Okay, so maybe you won't prevent it, but what if you just punish those people or did something? And that is the tension that we live in after the victory of Christ on the cross to the point where we find the final victory. God does punish evil. It's one of the explanations for suffering, one of them, (laughs) just one. But he's also reserved final judgment and ultimate punishment till the end. We said last week, you have to be careful. If you ask for justice and you really look at the skies and say, I want justice, I want it now, that could literally mean the annihilation of every single person. I think normally we mean we want selective justice, like help me out in this situation or make that person stop, but we don't really mean bring full judgment now. Morgan. Well, I think it does give us that responsibility as well, right? I mean, even though, as you know, the, our justice systems are very flawed and, and ridiculous, but there are lots of people who are put away in jail and who, who are rightly convicted of, of wrongdoing. And so there, there are systems of punishment that, that God has also given us. I think that rounds out the answer a little bit as well. Yeah, it might not be our court systems. I can attest to that. (laughs) We say, as lawyers, we say that our justice system and and true justice only occasionally intersect. All right. There's two other questions that are kind of left over. Now, this one, in fairness, we've tried to hit a number of times. But it came back a couple more times on the questions. So I'm going to try one last time if you give me a little bit of license. The question really comes down to, if God knows what will happen, why is not God culpable for the evil that results? From all that I've read, this is the best I can synthesize. Knowing something is going to happen is not the same thing as either making it happen, and it doesn't make him culpable for the fact that we choose to make it happen. Even if he knows that you are going to commit murder. I know most of you immediately are gut-level reactions. Why does he stop it? But then, again, he's going to have to stop every single thing. But knowing that that is the evil in your heart and that is the evil that you want to do still keeps us morally responsible because we are the ones that want to do it. So I'm saying knowing something does not make God culpable. Allowing something does not make him culpable because that's the next step. But I've said that God either causes or allows all things. So you might say, but allowing it, doesn't that bring him into it? We are still doing the very evil we want to do. God does give us freedom to choose evil. That's the whole point. And in a moment, I'm going to talk about why. I also put an asterisk there when I say God rarely 
acts to overwhelm our choice. The reason is I don't really know how often he does or he doesn't. The church has been divided over that issue for 2,000 years over how much God's sovereignty impacts our freedom to choose. I know that in my view, it happens. I don't know how often. I've used the word rarely, but that may be the wrong word. Yes. If it's saying here that we choose to do it, um, you said before that nothing we can choose to do can like thwart God's plan, in which case... We have to be careful of what we're talking about. When I've said God's will can or cannot be thwarted. I told you if I had some time, I would go back and read Gregory Boyd's book, Is God to Blame? Just because, you know, what the heck, let's do one more book while we're at it, you know? And he has that point over and over, which is people say that God's will cannot be thwarted, but it's thwarted every day. We rebel against him. We turn against him. Angels rebel. We rebel. We sin. He says, I want no one to perish, but we know that people will perish. So God's will is being thwarted every day. Right, but which will? It's his moral will, his commands. The place where he allows his freedom to believe or accept or to follow his commands. But when I say his overall sovereign will cannot be thwarted, what I'm saying is that overall, the way he wants it to come out in the end is not going to be thwarted. Sure, you could turn your back on God and you could rebel. You can thwart those kinds of things, but in the end, he's going to even work through evil. He's going to work through every possible thing if he needs to. It's still going to come out the way he wants it. That's been my view. Yeah, right. I know we talked how, in some cases, God does send suffering for a very specific purpose. In that case, it would seem like he's culpable for that. And is that kind of suffering to be differentiated? Like, what are the differences in in the suffering? Because suffering kind of tends to feel the same. So I guess the question would be, what is the difference between suffering that's caused by God and suffering that's caused by free will? I think there is a difference here, which is, This question really deals with, is God culpable for the choices we make with our free will, right? There are times when we said that God even declares in Scripture, like, I'm going to send this calamity, or I'm going to discipline these people, or I'm going to cause this problem for their repentance, for them to turn to me for their own good. That is God causing suffering, but that's not evil, because God is allowing some of his judgment, some of his punishment, some of his discipline, whatever it is, to start now. There's nothing that requires God to wait. It's just that that seems to be his plan. I'm differentiating that from this question. This is a question where I'll be blunt. The question that comes up in almost every book I read is, when God watched the Holocaust take place, is he culpable for that? What's the difference, one author said, from allowing it to happen than the very people who were there doing the killing? To me, the first difference is there were people there doing the killing. It was amazing that that point didn't seem to even come up in the discussion. That there was no difference in this author's mind. That if God allowed it, he might as well have been there doing it. I don't know that. That that skips a point for me. I know you're probably still troubled by why he would allow it. But the point is, it's still moral culpability on the part of people who want to commit this evil act, Philip. I mean, don't we hold like officers and stuff responsible for it, even if they didn't individually do the killing, but they just didn't do anything to stop it? Like during those times, they're just like, they're just ordering around people to do their jobs. Like, because that's their responsibility to make sure someone else does their job. But like, we would still hold them responsible for like, you were in a position of power and could have done something to stop this, but you didn't. And so like, we would hold a person responsible for that idea of having the power to stop something, seeing it happen and not doing anything. 
And so why would we not hold God responsible for the same thing? That's a very good question, and that's where the hardest answer comes in. And I think the only way I come out with it is simply because he is not morally responsible for what they're doing, and his allowance is part of his plan not to interfere in every single evil. Now, you might say, well, the Holocaust should be a big exception, right? I mean, if there's anything he's ever going to interfere in, it should be that. Right. But that puts us in a place where we're judging what God does or doesn't do. And in this particular case, the best I can do, as difficult as is for these words to come out of my mouth, I have to let God make those decisions because he knows how it's all going to work out. And I'm not even saying, by the way, that he planned this from the beginning and thought, hey, wouldn't it be neat to throw in a little holocaust right there and see how that fit in the plan? I don't believe that. Yeah. Yeah, you say that you don't believe that God didn't... Oh, wait, what did you just say? Let me explain. <laughs> Let me elaborate on what I'm doing. Sometimes when people attack the view of God's sovereignty, what they do is they set up a straw man. They knock it down easily. I thought Gregory Boyd in his book did this effectively, the straw man. I just don't believe it's a valid argument. He attacks what's called the blueprint view, which is, in his words, that God, from the beginning of time, designed a blueprint that you can't change. And then all of us are on it. There's no way to get out of it. My disagreement with that is that sounds more like determinism or fatalism, where our choices aren't even factored in. He's just made our choices for us. So he sets that up and says, there's no way that that is what's happened. And then he knocks it down. And I think, well, yeah, I agree there's no way that that's happened. That's not even what I believe the right answer to be. I believe that that tension between allowing and causing thinks through every possibility and allows even people to rebel and do evil and do whatever they're going to do, and he somehow still brings out his plan in the midst of that. Not that he says, I'm going to make people do evil, and that's part of my plan. And it seems like that's what that view, that blueprint view sets up, like God has created little evil steps along the way and orchestrated them and still says, aha, I'm going to do this at the end. I don't, I don't think that's right. So that's what I was actually trying to cut down in a sentence, which was too short to... Explain that whole theory, okay? Okay, now, your, your other comment? Sure. I'm not sure that your separation of a moral will and sovereign will is nothing more than a theological or a logical point. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. To, like, we, may, we might create the distinction for ourselves to understand it, but I don't, I don't see how, in, in, in your stronger view of God's sovereign will, if you've got a strong view of sovereignty, what sense it means to break it up into a moral will either. The moral will is defined most of the time as God's commands. And most times that we see in scripture, like he'll say, this is my will, and he'll like say a commandment, right? What he's doing is he's setting up, this is the standard by which I want you to live. People can thwart that. People can say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like the Ten Commandments, you can set that up. Like, it's my will that you do these things. People go, no, don't want to do it. Some people look at that and go, see, God's will is being thwarted. Sure, you could disobey God. What I'm trying to say is that I separate those two because when I see God being thwarted, it's people disobeying him. I don't see his ultimate plan and the things that he wants to come about ever being thwarted. I don't see that in scripture, Jason. But he says that he, he would want that none would perish. I mean, I guess it's a distinction between just the words, but still that's something that he wants and it's something that's not going to happen. And that's where we would probably quibble over whether that's moral will or sovereign will. Several of the authors that I've looked at say that's what God's desire is, that's what his standard is, that's what he'd like to see. But clearly, everyone knows that's not going to happen, including God. It's not like he's saying, 
oh, you know, I, I wanted it 100%. You guys, just one person screwed the whole thing up. He's saying, this is the standard I want. But people are going to rebel, and they're going to have choice, and they're going to walk away, and that's not going to happen. Yeah. Even that can be part of God's sovereign will, that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but that there has to be some aspect. I feel like we have to acknowledge that he wants something else more. For whatever reason, somehow, like, he wants that, but something else trumps that. Like, and it's just more important. I don't, and what that is, is... Uh, Let me use that to transition, if I could, to the last question. Actually, this question, throw up, it's not the second to last question. Is it wrong for us simply to accept that God allows evil without knowing why? Like, can we just check the whole series and say, is it okay for us just to acknowledge that we just don't know why? Like, it's okay? Yeah, like, sure. It's not wrong to do that, but my feeling is there's lots of people in your life that want a little bit of a better answer than that. I think there's so many people who trip up over this question, both inside and outside the church. That's why we started the whole series in the first place. Going from what Philip was just talking about, what is the purpose? I'm on dangerous ground to even try to answer this question for you. Not because I think there's a million answers, there are, but because this puts you square in the mind of trying to answer for the Almighty. But I will give you what I think are some of the better answers. First, I don't think we're ever going to know, only God knows for certain. But this question is very important even though Only God knows for certain because we just finished saying that he's going to allow or cause all things for some greater purpose, even to allow evil. And as we've said before, he'll allow what he abhors to bring about what he desires. And the question that's come back on a number of cards is, okay, so what is that? That's so important that he would allow free will that's going to lead to suffering, even evil like the Holocaust and other things that have happened in this world. What is so important? And we've tried to answer it. Here's our last attempt at it. The most frequently cited answer is so that we could love God freely. That he gave us free will so that we could love him freely. I've also cautioned you against taking that too far. And we've talked about it before where the limits are of that. But I think that's a very good answer. One step deeper might be to understand why it's important for us to choose to love God. What about choice and love is so important to God? And I think it's this, that God wants us to participate in the very love that exists eternally between the Father and the Son. One of the books we read was Arthur McGill's Suffering, a Test of Theological Method that goes into a long explanation of this. I'm going to try to say it succinctly. From beyond all time, the Father glorified the Son, equal in all divinity, in all nature to himself. The Son voluntarily emptied himself out of that glory and became man, suffering servant for our sake. That's how he glorified the Father in return. So the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son empties himself, yes, suffering unto death to glorify the Father. And this seems to be this thing that goes on in a cyclical fashion for for eternity, probably, that this is the nature of love that they share between them, a love that is of self-giving, of surrender. So we see this in Scripture. Let me show you a couple of the places it comes from. In Philippians, we read these words. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What attitude is that? 
who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That was how Christ glorifies the Father, emptying himself out, doing the Father's will, playing that role in redemption. We see in 1 John, you want to know what love is? He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. What Jesus did for us, we should do for each other. Jesus himself said the same thing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. There's that relationship. We're being asked to participate in the very relationship between the Father and the Son, and we're being invited into that. Now remain in my love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. How is that love? How has he loved us? He died for us. He suffered for us. He gave up everything for us. Jesus concludes, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's the definition of love. A self-giving, a self-surrendering love, self-sacrificing to the point of death. That's what Jesus, in humility, gave to the Father. That's what he did for us. That's what he's asking us to do for one another. So coming full circle, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. It's not just metaphorical. He's just explained what he thinks love is in a different way than we're used to. And so finally, what is God's purpose in all of this? As Jesus prays, this is his prayer. His prayer for us. John 17, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples. I pray also for all who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. See the glory, how it kind of moves through? that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. What does that have to do with suffering? I believe that the purpose of giving us this free will is so that we can freely love and freely participate in the relationship that God, through the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who comes to testify about the Son, share with one another. They're inviting us into that relationship. And we have to accept that relationship freely. It's part of our own self-surrender. We surrender to rebellion against God. We surrender to the evil that we could do or that we do. We come through redemption, but in the end, 
we're to freely choose to participate in what Jesus is offering. Participation in that relationship. I don't think that can be done without free will. It means that God allowed even what he abhorred so that we could get to where he desired, which is this relationship. And that relationship requires free will. It requires our freedom to choose to be part. I and them and you and me and us to say, yes, I want to be part of that relationship with you. And when we do that, he says, I want those you've given me to be where I am and to see my glory. And that's what we get to do when we become more like Christ. Okay? That's the best I can surmise as to why we have this purpose to begin with. I've heard the argument that, oh, if we didn't have free will and we were just forced to love God, we'd just be robots and blah, blah, blah. But at some point that seems kind of appealing to me, to just be able to just love God without having to worry about doubt or questions or having to deal with any of this. I agree with that sentiment, by the way. I don't want you to think that, like, just because I put up all these verses that, I'm, that, that I think this answer is, oh, okay, that just solves it. It's simple. But I agree with your sentiment that I have even in my own heart believed, you know what? There is a point at which you say the price was too high to pay for us to have free will just so that we could participate in this. A robot might have been better. First, who am I to say to the maker, why did you make me this way? Okay. And second of all, I would say, I don't know if it's too high of a price to pay. The price that Christ paid by emptying himself out of the very glory that he shared with God to do what he did is a very high price. So I don't know that our price, no matter what we did, when we deserve this suffering, when we have sinned, when we are evil, when we are nothing that should even compare with what Christ has done, he's asking us to do the very same thing he did, um, then maybe it isn't as high of a price as that. Right. I would actually rather prefer to be a robot for one reason. I don't have to think about death. I won't have to worry when death is coming, if it's coming, because I know I will be programmed not to do that. Well, it is coming. I mean, just you said if it's coming, but it is. But, <laughs> death is assured. The only question is when and how. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. Yeah. And even taxes I don't know about. But, like, I got some clients that have, have questioned that last one. Yeah. I just think, like, one way God can have a bunch of robots, you know? So. Yeah, I think, first of all, God probably wouldn't get much out of robots, but the, the question might be, could we participate in this relationship as robots? Remember, it's God's choice to create. It's God's purpose. And I'm not even saying, oh, man, I'm, I can't believe that I've tried to explain what I think God wanted. But assuming that I'm somewhere in the, in the neighborhood, in the universe of what God wanted, whatever it was, I believe that this, what Jesus is talking about, cannot be accomplished by robots, and we can't have the ability to do that if we don't have the freedom to empty ourselves out and suffer, yes, even unto death. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking, like, even that idea of, like, not having a choice at all. Like, I can also see, like, that still working in a lot of the senses of God still loving us and us still loving Him. Like, um, there's a few elements that I think, like, would have to be removed from that. Like, there would be no reason for Jesus' sacrifice to some degree. Like, and that was, I don't know, like, I feel like that is important, like, of God showing us love, like, in a way that we wouldn't understand otherwise, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't see a reason for it. 
Yeah, we've, we've said before, the idea of Christ's redemption plan, the crucifixion, that was anticipated since the beginning, before even the creation. I believe that's always been the plan. Maybe part of the reason we have to have free will is we have to be in a place where we can just choose to glorify him in that way. Maybe it's even that simple. I don't know. It's always been the plan. It wasn't a rescue plan. It wasn't plan B. It was always there. Maybe we needed to find ourselves in a world that allowed us to freely choose it. Okay? I'll wrestle with you about this a little bit afterwards if you want. Thank you for putting up with this long explanation. Let me give you some concluding thoughts. And I want to say this not from a teaching standpoint, because that seems to be one of my things, and I don't often say things too much from a pastoral standpoint. Let me try that. We need to be very, very humble when we approach this topic. We've spent eight weeks, we've barely scratched the surface. I could recommend the books to you that I've read. There's one or two of them that stand out that I think would be helpful. You tell me the angle you're coming from, and I might recommend a different one. But we have to be very, very humble and very hesitant to ascribe a reason as to the suffering that occurs. So much damage is caused when we ascribe reasons that we might be wrong about. One of the criticisms I had of Gregory Boyd's book is most of it seems to be based out of heartbreak. That Christians have injured people so much that it's almost like it's shifted his whole theology to react against what Christians have done. But that's not the way we should be writing our theology. It should be based on what's in Scripture to the best we can understand it. But not based on human emotion. But that being said, we do injure one another all the time by things we say. We have to be very careful. Just because I've put up 10 or 20 different reasons that suffering might occur, if someone is going through suffering, that may not be the time for you to pull out the list and go, well, it could be any one of these reasons. We know Jesus dealt with a very similar situation where in Luke, he actually makes an example where he says, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? The presumption in the question of Jesus was, I bet you these people suffered because of something they did. They were evil. That seemed to be always the way people thought around his time, that if people suffer, if people have deformities or any kind, it's because somebody sinned, there's some sin going on. He said, do you think they're worse sinners? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will also perish. Or those 18 people who died when the tire of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than other people living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus was reacting against the type of people who tried to ascribe to things. Well, that's why the suffering happened. Or, hey, Jesus, don't you think that's the reason why? And he's like, no. So we have to be very humble and careful because a lot of times, unless it's revealed to you by prophecy or scripture, you don't know. Number two, can we be willing to be silent and present for people? You know, Job's friends did a lot of things wrong. They ascribed all the wrong reasons. They didn't know what was going on in the backstory, but there's one thing they did right. When they first found out about Job, it says in Job chapter 2, when they heard about his troubles, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. If only that was the end of their involvement. 
They would have been considered so righteous in Scripture. There are times when that is the right thing to do. There are people in our lives who will suffer. Instead of pulling out a list or coming up with explanations, in addition to being humble, in addition to not being arrogant enough to ascribe why the reason is, we still need to be there for them. We still need to be present in their suffering and just be there. And you know somebody who's really going through it, they probably don't even want to talk. And they might send you away for a while. But be present. It's so difficult and so lonely when you're clutching your stomach when the pain of suffering has hit you and you don't know how you're going to make it through. We, when we're okay, can be present to those people during that time. Number three, let us not be passive in accepting evil and suffering. All of the theological things that I've said about God allowing it doesn't mean that we get to just sit back and say, well, if he's going to allow it, let it be. That's a mistake on our part. That would ignore all of God's statements about justice, about how he cries out for us to act in the world, how he commands us to clothe, feed, love, visit, care for, give, pray, all those things that are commandments in Scripture that we're supposed to be doing. Today in the world, there's suffering going on in all parts of the world. Whether it's people who can't fend for themselves because they're caught up in sex trafficking or people who can't eat, people are caught in drought, whatever the thing is going on, it would be wrong for us and it would ignore a whole lot of scripture for us to stick on the point, even if you agree with me, that God might allow that to happen and say, well, if he's going to allow it to happen, who am I to jump in? You are God's people. You are the body of Christ. That's who you are to jump in. So we should never be passive about that. We also should be careful not to recreate God into our own image. In some of the books that I've been reading, just like I said, there's a tendency to say, I, I can't live with that and then find another way out. To somehow recreate God to say, God must not know everything because that would create a lot of problems. God must not be powerful because that would create a lot of problems. God must not be good. We come to a lot of answers. And I'll tell you right now, it would be very easy for me to throw out a lot of parts of Scripture, like I said. I, I mean, even things that aren't in Scripture. I'd like to have a God that doesn't have a triunity. That's too hard for me to understand or wrap my mind around. I don't know that I want to live with a God who's, who's, who's thinking about all the possibilities and allowing some things. I don't want to deal with a God maybe who can actually allow Satan to do things. But I have to wrestle with God the way I find him. Even if it's limited in my understanding but certainly check my feelings at the door sometimes when I rage against and say, I have to find a different way because he doesn't fit my understanding. As a community, can we help to be reconstructive when we deconstruct? Let me tell you what I mean by that specifically. You know, in our Christian education, in our seminaries, even in this group, we're very, very good about pointing out to people, maybe you don't understand what the language says, maybe you don't understand this theology, maybe you don't understand how, this, how the whole canon came together, We're good at surprising people. We like pull the rug out from under people sometimes. And it helps our critical thinking. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. You see me doing that. That we challenge one another and say, I don't know, maybe you should look at that verse more carefully. I don't think that's really what it's saying. Or I think you should consider this other writer and what he has to say might change your mind. We pull the rug out from under us. But the problem is that's deconstruction and it helps us grow a little bit. But somebody's got to put the pieces back together. And that is an area that we're not good at. Not just this group, but I see it all over campus. I see it all over seminaries. 
that we can deconstruct like anybody. We could surprise each other with how much we know that will shatter people's faith sometimes, but we're not good at helping them put the pieces back together. And we aren't a class. We aren't a seminary. We're a believing community that at the end of a difficult topic like this should come around each other and say, whatever it is, I affirm that God is sovereign and he's true. And I affirm that Christ is real. And I affirm my faith, even if I don't understand all these things, because it's not necessary to my relationship with Christ. It's Yes, it's great. Yes, it's fantastic to help other people understand it. But we need to be a kind of people who reconstruct together. And in some of the conversations that I've had, I've seen some of the impact of how deconstruction kind of can hurt us sometimes. We do it so much that we forget that, yeah, but at some point we've got to put the pieces back together. Number six, let's be thankful for every gift in this life that the Lord has given. I told you two weeks ago when we put it all together that the very fact that we have just a relative moment of peace in our life, any amount of peace at all, is amazing. In a fallen world, the fact that we have any amount of just, I mean, God is great. He's so good that even in the midst of this fallen world, he gives us his grace and he gives us his mercy. He doesn't wait till the very end He doesn't withhold himself completely as he has every right to do. So right now, just the fact that we're here and that we're relatively okay is something we should never take for granted. And last, let's keep in mind that this world is not really our ultimate home. For those of us who are in suffering, for those of us who are in anguish, or those of us who know people, we know every one of us is going to pass from this earth. Every one of us, it's going to end. Just a question of how and when. Paul talks about this, and I'll close with this verse, about suffering. Now, Paul, at this point, is talking about the suffering that the believers are facing and the persecution that they are going through, that he himself has faced. Persecuted, crushed, he calls it. Then he says this, Therefore, though, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed Day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that in this earthly tent we live It is destroyed. We have a building from God. Notice he describes like our life here on this earth and our body like as a tent compared to a building. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. But meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose. And has given us the spirit as a deposit, as a down payment. Guaranteeing what is to come. That's the purpose. That we are with him away from this tent and in that building in our heavenly dwelling forever in glory with him whatever we suffer on this earth whatever we see we should never lose sight of that's the fact that's what we're going for whatever is seen that's temporary what's unseen that's what we're going for 
So I pray as we close up tonight that whatever we've done in this series, whatever we've taken apart, whatever we've struggled over, whatever has caused us a little bit of doubt, that in this moment we kind of come back together and affirm that in the end what we are hoping for is a life in eternity, in glory, sharing the love of the triune God who gives that offer to us. May we all accept it. Let's pray. Lord God, take our humble offerings, our thoughts, as silly as they may be compared to your wisdom and your knowledge. Take our offering, Lord, to be our self-sacrifice, freely surrendering our rebellion against you to be redeemed in Christ, to be adopted sons and daughters, Lord. Take our offering tonight to be that even though we don't understand, even though our minds rebel against the thoughts sometimes that surround this topic, that we even surrender those things, Lord, and say, you are Christ, you are Lord, you are our salvation, you are our Redeemer, you are God. And in the end, if we affirm those things, Lord, all these things will someday be set aside. This tent that we now live in will be discarded and will be with you forever in glory. But Lord, it's not just for us that we make this offering. Lord, we would not labor in a series like this if it weren't for the other people who do not know you. Lord, I just pray right now supernaturally that your spirit would preserve some part of this series in our heart. Just a small part that spirit, you know what that part is so that when we interact with other people and they desperately need to know and they ask the questions that are deeper that somehow, Lord, you would use the time that we have set aside in this series that you would bring to mind those things that we need to offer. Lord, you know what they are, and you know who these people are, and we don't know when it's going to be, but Lord, I believe that that is why we're gathered here, and that's why your spirit is active in this room. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this community. Pray this in your name. Amen.